Good morning. My name is Elizabeth Foss. I am the newly appointed pastor here at First United Methodist Church in Martinsville. And it is a pleasure to greet you this morning in the name of our Lord and Savior, Jesus Christ. In addition to this online service, we also have a drive-through service or drive-in service that is held at the Uptown Ministry Center at nine o'clock on Sunday mornings. We invite you to come to that. We use an FM transmitter so that you can hear the service through your car radios and we promise to make you feel right at home. Because I'm new and learning everybody's names and, and faces, I would love for you to stop by. I have an open door policy, so anytime you'd like to come by my office, please do. I'd love to meet you and, and get to know you. If you have a pastoral need, please also call the church office. I would love to visit with you or help in any way that I possibly can. Blessings to you as we begin worship on this seventh Sunday of Pentecost. Will you join me responsively in the call to worship? You keep us waiting, you, the God of all time, want us to wait for the right time in which to discover who we are, where we must go, who will be with us, and what we must do. So thank you, Lord, for the waiting time. You keep us looking, you, the God of all space, want us to look in the right and wrong places for signs of hope, for people who are hopeless, for visions of a better world, which will appear among the disappointments of the world we know. So thank you, Lord, for the looking time. You keep us loving, you, the God whose name is love, want us to be like you, to love the loveless and the unlovely, to love without jealousy or design or threat, and most difficult of all, to love ourselves. So thank you, Lord, for the loving time. And in all this, you keep us through hard questions with no easy answers, through failing where we hoped to succeed, and making an impact when we thought we were useless, through the patience and encouragement and love of others, and through Jesus Christ and the Holy Spirit, you keep us. So thank you, Lord, for the keeping time, and for now, and forever. Amen. I can hear the brush of angels' wings. 
This morning is a prayer of St. Francis. Will you join in praying with me? Christ be with us, Christ before us, Christ behind us, Christ in us, Christ beneath us, Christ above us, Christ on our right, Christ on our left, Christ where we lie, Christ where we sit, Christ where we arise, Christ in the heart of everyone who thinks of us. Christ in every eye that sees us. Christ in every ear that hears us. Salvation is of the Lord. Salvation is of the Christ. May your salvation, O Lord, be ever with us. Amen. Good morning. I'm Pastor Elizabeth. I wanted to talk with the children for just a moment. I thought this morning I would talk about why pastors wear stoles. Stoles are these things that look like scarves that we wear around our necks. Uh, once we are ordained, we can wear them this direction, and um, diaconal ministers actually wear theirs this direction. But I'm an ordained elder, and so I wear mine straight down. This stole is green. It is green because we wear stoles that represent the season in which we are in. So we have, you know, we typically think in a year of the seasons of fall, winter, spring, and summer. But in the Christian year, those seasons are different. We begin with the season of Advent, then Christmas and the season after Christmas, and then the season of Epiphany, and then the season of Lent and Easter, and the season after Easter. And then on Pentecost, we move into a new time, the season after Pentecost, which is a time when we, we talk about growing in our faith, growing in our discipleship, growing in how we follow Jesus. And so because it's a growth time, we wear green stoles, green being symbolic of growth. During Advent and Lent, we wear purple. During Easter and Christmas, we wear white. Epiphany also, we wear white. On Pentecost, we wear red. So each of the stoles that we wear represent the, the season of the year in which we find ourselves. We also wear white stoles when we are celebrating sacraments, like baptism and Holy Communion. We wear stoles for a very specific reason. Uh, there's a, a story that we remember and, and celebrate on Monday, Thursday, or Holy Thursday, during Holy Week. It is a story in which Jesus washes the disciples' feet. Now, in Jesus' day, if people wore sandals and they lived in a hot and dusty climate, and so people's feet would get pretty dirty. And when you would arrive in someone's household, it was the job of a servant to wash your feet. And so Jesus, their Lord, washes their feet. And he reminds them that following him means loving others and being like servants to them, being willing to serve 
and to love. So pastors actually wear stoles as a reminder of the towel that Jesus used that he had around his neck as he washed and then dried the feet of his disciples. They remind us that we are here to love and to serve. I have stoles that have come from many different places. Most of them have been gifts. All of them have a story. I have stoles that were handmade by parishioners. I have stoles that have been hand embroidered. I have one stole that was made for, by a friend of mine for me. It has pink flamingos on it, so it's a pretty unusual stole. I wear it when I do the blessing of the animal service in October. I have special stoles for weddings and baptisms. I have stoles that have the children of the world on them. And when we have special services involving children, I sometimes wear that stole. All of my stoles are reminders to me of servanthood, but also of the love of the people who gave them to me. And so all of them are, are very special to me. And if you ever want to ask me a question about the stole that I happen to be wearing, I would love to tell you the story behind it. Let us pray. Holy and gracious God, may your Holy Spirit give us a sp spirit of wisdom and revelation so that with the eyes of our hearts enlightened, we may know the hope to which Christ has called us, the riches of his glorious inheritance among us, and the greatness of his power for those who believe. Amen. Our Old Testament lesson this morning is found in the 28th chapter of the book of Genesis, beginning with the 10th verse. Jacob left Beersheba and went toward Haran. He came to a certain place and stayed there for the night because the sun had set. Taking one of the stones of the place, he put it under his head and lay down in that place. And he dreamed that there was a ladder set up on the earth, the top of it reaching to heaven, and the angels of God were ascending and descending on it. And the Lord stood beside him and said, I am the Lord, the God of Abraham your father, and the God of Isaac. The land on which you lie I will give to you and to your offspring. And your offspring shall be like the dust of the earth, and you shall spread abroad to the west and to the east and to the north and to the south. And all the families of the earth shall be blessed in you and in your offspring. Know that I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you until I have done what I have promised you. Then Jacob woke from his sleep and said, Surely the Lord is in this place, and I did not know it. And he was afraid and said, How awesome is that this place! This is none other than the house of God, and this is the gate of heaven. So Jacob rose early in the morning, and he took the stone that he had put under his head and set it up for a pillar and poured oil on the top of it. He called the place Bethel, but the name of the city was Luz at the first. This is the word of God for the people of God. Thanks be to God. Amen. Our gospel lesson this morning is found in the 13th chapter of Matthew's gospel, beginning with the 24th verse. He put before them another parable. The kingdom of heaven may be compared to someone who sowed good seed in the field. But while everybody was asleep, an enemy came and sowed weeds among the wheat and then went away. 
So when the plants came up and bore grain, then the weeds appeared as well. And the slaves of the householder came and said to him, Master, did you not sow good seed in your field? Where then did these weeds come from? He answered, An enemy has done this. The slaves said to him, Then do you want us to go and gather them? But he replied, No, for in gathering the weeds you would uproot the wheat with them. Let both of them grow together until the harvest, and at the harvest time I will tell the reapers, Collect the weeds first and bind them in bundles to be burned, but gather the wheat into my barn. Then he left the crowds and went into the house, and his disciples approached him, saying, Explain to us the parable of the weeds of the field. He answered, The one who sows the good seed is the son of man, the field is the world, and the good seed are the children of the kingdom. The weeds of the children, the weeds are the children of the evil one, and the enemy who sowed them is the devil. The harvest is the end of the age, and the reapers are angels. Just as the weeds are collected and burned up with fire, so will it be at the end of the age. The Son of Man will send his angels, and they will collect out of his kingdom all causes of sin and all evildoers, and they will throw them into the furnace of fire, where there will be weeping and gnashing of teeth. Then the righteous will shine like the sun in the kingdom of their Father. Let anyone with ears listen. This is the gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. Thanks be to God. Amen. Generosity swept right off his feet. 
situation. One way is to use a service straight from the book of worship. The other way, which is what I do and what my friend did, is to spend hours with the family learning about that person, hearing the rich stories and memories that are then woven either directly or thematically into a service that is very personalized. In this particular situation, my friend Chris went to visit with the family who only shared one story about the woman who had died. I don't know if they just wanted to keep the rest of the stories private or if they really just couldn't think of anything else to, to say, but what they told her is that 
She liked to paint rocks. That's not a lot to work with as a pastor and preacher officiating at a service that should celebrate the totality and blessing of a life. My friend did something that I would not have thought of. She actually looked up all of the mentions of rocks in the Bible to see how they were used. She came up with five. Stones are used to mark boundaries. They are used as reminders to remember God or others. They become foundations. Sometimes they are used as altars. And once Jesus even connects them to praise, saying that if these were silent, these very stones would shout out. Well, in today's Old Testament text, Jacob uses a stone as a pillow. And then when he wakes up the next morning, having had a dream in which God spoke to him, he uses that stone to mark the place, which he names Bethel, because he comes to realize it is a holy place where God has been present, though he had been unaware of God's presence and activity when he had first laid down to sleep. Let me briefly catch you up on the story. Jacob is on the run. He is terrified because he has swindled his brother Esau out of his birthright and blessing with the cooperation of their mother, Rebekah. And Esau has vowed to come and kill him on the day that their father Isaac dies. Jacob was his mother's favorite. Jacob, Jacob is his mother's favorite, excuse me. Isaac, his father, who is old, feeble and blind, actually favors his older twin brother, Esau, the firstborn of the twins, an outdoorsman, a skilled hunter. Esau was to inherit the family's wealth and the responsibility to manage and preside over the family's wealth. Esau was to be the head of the family after the ceremonial conferring of the blessing, the title, to be given by his father, Isaac. The time came for the blessing, and Isaac planned a festive meal for his favorite son Esau and for himself, at which he would confer the blessing. Now Rebekah, whose favorite is Jacob, wants the blessing to be conferred on him. And so together they plan and pull off one of the greatest scams in history. She prepares her husband's favorite meal. She dresses Jacob in Esau's clothes, puts goat skin on Jacob's hands and neck to make him feel like Esau. No detail is overlooked. It works. Isaac gives the blessing, the inheritance, to Jacob, thinking he's Esau. And when Esau discovers what has happened, he is enraged and promises to kill his brother when their father dies. Rebekah intercedes again, sending Jacob off to live with her brother Laban. Years later, when they finally meet again, Esau will do the most remarkable thing. Instead of killing his brother, he runs to greet Jacob when he sees him approaching, and the brothers embrace and weep together. But this text takes place that first night after the scam, after the vow to kill was uttered by Esau. Jacob is on the run, he's out in the wilderness, he's alone and lonely and terrified and exhausted. He has betrayed his brother and his father. 
He has lied and cheated and stolen what was not his. And somehow he manages to lie down to sleep at the end of that frightful day with a stone for a pillow. Jacob has been banished from his home and from his family as a result of his own deception and deceit. Now, banishment from the tribe or the clan is just about the worst thing that could have happened to a person. It was a virtual death sentence. Remember, with no social service system in place, family was all one head. Jacob is also terrified that his brother may be following him. So he's out in the wilderness and he's utterly alone and probably feeling very guilty. He's made this mess all by himself. And when the sun goes down on the first day of his journey, he lies down with a stone for a pillow, he falls asleep, and he has a dream. That dream is, I believe, the first dream that is recorded in the Bible. It's a dream that we know well, having grown up singing a folk song about it. Many of us learned it in vacation Bible school or, or at uh, church camp. We are climbing Jacob's ladder, and it has motions that go along with it. And it's a song about a ladder with angels that are ascending and descending. And Jacob hears the voice, the same voice that came to his father and his grandfather and his grandmother. Behold, I am with you and will keep you wherever you go and will bring you back to this land, for I will not leave you. Now, the ancient world paid a lot of attention to dreams as a, a means of revelation and insight. There's a lot of dreaming in the Bible. Jacob, Joseph, and Daniel have important dreams, as do the wise men, Pilate's wife, and Peter. Even in our day, there's still a lot of study about dreams. We're kind of wired to dream as a natural part of our sleep cycle. And without the deep sleep in which we have dreams, we cannot live. Beyond this, the fields of psychology and psychiatry have delved into the symbolism of dreams and the functions dream play, dreams play in helping us to cope with all kinds of life events. In a theological treatment of dreams in the Christian Century magazine, one author wrote, dreams address us. They invite us beyond our management. Now, this first dream in the Bible is important. It comes at a pivotal and very human moment. And it says, first, that this God of ours is not particularly predictable, refuses to be confined to human ideas and expectations, behaves in ways that are not always reasonable and rational. Who would expect God to come out there in the wilderness to Jacob, who is running for his life? God comes not to a holy place, not to a, a sacred altar or a sanctuary, God comes to the place where Jacob is. Jacob is on the run. He's not looking for God. But God finds him. And when he wakes from the dream, when he is in that liminal space between sleeping and waking, that time when one wonders what's really real, the sleep world or the awake world, he recognizes that God has spoken to him, that God was in this place and that he had been utterly unaware. So he marks the place, and he names it Bethel. That's first. God comes into the world, not where we expect God, 
not only where we build altars and buildings and gather in them, although Jesus did promise that where two or three gather in his name, he would be in their midst, an experience that we share regularly in worship. But that isn't the end of it. That is not the only place God comes, not just to our religious buildings and structures. God comes when and where God chooses. And given that no space or time is devoid of the sacred, that means anywhere, anytime. God comes into the world and into our lives in ways that are not always predictable. Second, God comes into the world at its most worldly. He comes into the world to a fugitive who is on the run from his own misdeeds and guilt, out in the wilderness with his head on a stone pillow. God comes into the world, and so God's church must never forget that. We are living in a time when we cannot gather in our chapel or in our sanctuary, but that doesn't make God's presence and activity any less real. God is with us in the midst of this pandemic, and God is with us as we move into the world to share his love. Emmanuel means God with us, not God with us only in a church building. God comes to us not just when we are sitting in our pew in church or saying our prayers. God comes to us in our humanness, where we are most human, in the midst of our frailties and weaknesses and our doubts and our anxieties and fears, as well as in our hopes and our dreams. God comes to us in our disappointments and failures, our guilt, our betrayals and deceits, as God came to Jacob. And even Jacob's guilt and betrayals did not keep God from finding him in the night with the promise of newness and possibility. I will be with you, and I will keep you, and I will bring you home. Is there any better news than that? There's nothing we have done or, or can do that will keep God from coming to us with the promise of forgiveness and restoration and homecoming. And that is the good news for us today, even in the midst of this pandemic that seems to go on and on and on. God is with us. God will keep us. And God will bring us to the other side. God will bring us home. I encourage you this week to think of times and places where you came to realize later that God had been with you. It may be a memory of someone or it may be an actual place, the church where you first came to know Christ or a cemetery where a loved one is buried or a place in the mountains or by the ocean where you experience God's majesty and creative power. Find a way to honor that memory or that place this week. If it's an actual place, perhaps you can do what Jacob did and mark it with a stone. If you can't think of a place that has been holy ground for you, then take the advice of, of author Frederick Buechner, who says that often you can identify those holy places if you pay attention to those times in which you found yourself with tears in your eyes or a lump in your throat. This story calls us to pay attention, to, to slow down and to see, to take breaks every day, to seek God's activity and presence, to make time and space for God to be with us and touch us, 
in which we become aware of his presence, where in the midst of our busyness, perhaps we had not been. And this story promise us, promises the most important thing that I can think of. God saying, I will be with you and I will keep you wherever you go and I will bring you home. Thanks be to God. Amen. Will you join me in the affirmation of faith, the Apostles' Creed? I believe in God, the Father Almighty, maker of heaven and earth, and in Jesus Christ, his only Son, our Lord, who was conceived by the Holy Spirit, born of the Virgin Mary, suffered under Pontius Pilate, was crucified, dead, and buried. The third day he rose from the dead, he ascended into heaven, and sitteth at the right hand of God the Father Almighty. From thence he shall come to judge the quick and the dead. I believe in the Holy Spirit, the Holy Catholic Church, the communion of saints, the forgiveness of sins, the resurrection of the body, and the life everlasting. Amen. And now with the boldness of children of God, let us pray as our Lord has taught us. Our Father, who art in heaven, hallowed be thy name. Thy kingdom come, thy will be done, on earth as it is in heaven. Give us this day our daily bread, and forgive us our trespasses, as we forgive those who trespass against us. And lead us not into temptation, but deliver us from evil. For thine is the kingdom, and the power, and the glory, forever. Amen.
now may you go forth in peace to love and to serve God and your neighbor in all that you do. And the blessing of God, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit be upon you. Amen. Juhe auf der Niedernalm.